We are in Luke, and I have got the outline that we've been using up behind me, and I will tell you tonight we're going to abandon the outline. What we've done is conflict with Pharisees over money, which is Luke 11.37 to 12.34. So we finished 12.34 last time. If we were doing things the way we have been doing them, we would now skip down to Luke 69 through 31, which is the corresponding conflict with the Pharisees over money. We're not going to do that. And the reason we're not going to do that is because of 16, 1 through 8, which is the dishonest manager, which is, by the way, one of my very favorite parables. And the problem is the dishonest manager sets up a bunch of the stuff that happens in 16, 9 through 31. So what I want to do is I want to start with Luke 16 and just do all of that, which means in order for that to work, we need to do 12:35 through 59 tonight. What I'm doing is I am lumping conflict with the Pharisees over money and the kingdom not yet and now into one. And then next time, we will lump the kingdom not yet and now in 16 and conflict with the Pharisees over money also in 16. So that's a breach in what we have been doing up to now. But the parable of the dishonest steward really needs to be read before you read the conflict over money. Continuing on then, in Luke 12, we finished... Luke 32 through 34 last time, and what he's doing is talking about the importance of worldly possessions vis-a-vis spiritual possessions. It isn't the case that worldly possessions are unimportant. It is the case that they are not of ultimate importance. Remember we talked about inside and outside last time, where you had the way things appeared on the surface versus what was going on underneath the hood. And in the case of the Pharisees, everything looked really good on the surface, but underneath the hood, it was not good. And the problem under the hood was that the Pharisees were motivated by money, power, and status. And so they did everything with regard to that. The fact that they looked good on the surface is because in that culture, looking good on the surface was a path and a source to wealth, power, and status. The point of this whole section that we've just been through is the underlying spiritual condition of the Pharisees is a love of wealth, power, and status. And in order to get wealth, power, and status in their particular culture, they had to have a veneer of godliness. And so they did. And they did it really well because they saw it as a vehicle to the thing that they really want. And of course, Yeshua, looking at them, said, that's not what's ultimately important. So then he's talking to his disciples and explaining to them that God will take care of them and they needn't go to the lengths the Pharisees go to. So what we're going to do next is we're going to shift focus slightly and what he's going to talk about is how do you live your life in the expectation 
that the Messiah at some point is going to return. Now, one other thing, just to be clear, if you go back to 1222, he says, and he said to his disciples. So at this point, the conversation is between him and his disciples. So when we pick up 1235, he is still talking to his disciples. So stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast. Now, notice what the master is coming home from. He's coming home from a wedding feast, which is to say he's going to be in a good mood. He's not coming back from a long business trip, in which case he may be in a good mood or a bad mood, depending on how it went. But the idea of coming back from a wedding feast is that you're in a good mood. And that'll be important because he's going to give two vignettes here and very different tone of voice. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. A couple of things here. One, notice that everything is positive here. Certainly the servants could be asleep and he would be grumpy with them, but there's no intimation of cutting them up and casting them into the outer darkness in this particular vignette. That's the next vignette. That's why I say the fact that he's coming back from a wedding, he's in a good mood, all that is important. And then the idea of somebody breaking into the house, I'm not sure why he shifts to that. I will venture a guess. He has left, and he's coming back. And notice it says, but know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming. So the master would not have left had he known at what hour the thief was coming. So it is not the case we're talking about the servants here, we're talking about the master. So, what I am suggesting may be going on here is if the servants are not alert, it is possible that the house would be broken into while the master was gone. Comment was, all of these vignettes are given in villages, small communities, that's important. And in a small community, a wedding is a big deal. So pretty much everybody would be invited. So if you were a thief and you know when the wedding was going to be, you would realize when the houses might be unattended. And you would recognize that there's an opportunity then to be able to break in without being caught. So that may also be part of the deal. But back to the original point, if the servants are sound asleep, the master is gone, and you have a thief prowling around, 
looking for houses where people have gone off to celebrate because they would be easy pickings, that might be one of the reasons why having the servants awake becomes more important. Who's the thief? Hasatan, Satan. That's the thief, right? And if the master had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have left, which indicates to me that just as nobody knows when he's returning, nobody knows when the thief will come either. If he had a schedule for this guy, he would arrange to be there to defend his goods, us, but he doesn't know that any more than we know when he's coming back. That's vignette number one. And he is talking to his disciples, his servants. So now down to verse 41. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? So at this point, the briefing is just for his disciples. Now, Yeshua is actually not going to answer the question. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at its proper time? Now, notice we've shifted job descriptions here. So the first vignette, it's servants who were in the house and just needed to be alert and awake so that when the master came and knocked on the door, they would be awake to open it. And he says, wow, you guys are good and faithful servants. And one thing I missed, back up to the first vignette, the idea that the master will serve the servants. So if the master finds the servants doing what they're supposed to do and awake and alert when he comes back, he himself will serve them, which is contrary to the culture. There are other vignettes where Yeshua says, all right, now which of you having a servant at the end of the day will say, sit down, relax, eat, drink, everything's cool. No. What you'll do is you say, make me supper, get me food, and then you can sit down and relax, even though the guy's worked all day. So the idea of the master serving the servant is jarring. It would be like the parable of Good Samaritan, where you have a priest, a Levite, and then a Samaritan. That's a cognitive jolt to folks. And it's the same kind of a cognitive jolt here. So now we have a shift in job descriptions. Before we had just regular servants. Now we have someone who's a manager. In the case of the first vignette, the master lives in the house and the master is gone for an evening for a wedding. The master is not gone for a long period of time. So that's the first vignette. The second one now, the master is gone for an extended period of time. So verse 42 again. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Straightforward. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know. So the idea here in this vignette is an extended absence. And this manager has been left in charge of a household with a staff of servants. The idea here is that the master is gone long enough that a wicked servant can convince himself that he will have time to put things right before the master returns. Classic thing with an embezzler. The guy runs into money trouble and he takes some money and he says, I will be able to put it back before it's missed. I've just got this one thing that I've got to take care of, keep me out of trouble, but I should be able to put it back by the end of the week, by the end of the month, whatever. But before the auditor shows up, I'll have it put back. That's sort of the classic rationalization of an embezzler. Same thing is going on here with the manager. Boss has been away for a while. Looks like he's going to be away for a while longer. I can afford to let down and relax, and I should be able to get things back in order before he returns. That kind of a mindset. And the other thing about that is the mindset is not purposefully wicked. The mindset is lazy and opportunistic. This guy does not set out to defraud the master, any of those kinds of things. It's just something apparently that if he's been gone for a while, I can let down and live easily for a while and I'll be able to put things back. And oh, by the way, I want to make sure that the rest of the servants don't rat me out. So he is establishing dominance. And I would suggest that part of the reason for that is you don't want to cross me. I am the boss's right-hand man. And if any hint of any of this gets out, I will make sure that your life is really, really miserable. And in fact, you'll probably get fired. I'm suggesting that may be a motivation. Or he may just be a jerk. And if he's just a jerk, which he could be, then the idea of abusing the servants goes along with the idea of eh, eating, drinking, relaxing. It's going to be a while before he gets back. Nobody knows, and nobody will know, I'm guessing. One of the things that happens, very human condition, is very few people start out to be wicked. What happens is they sort of fall into it and drift into it, and once they're in it, they can't figure out how to get out, and they come to enjoy it and it comes to be profitable and so forth, and so they go deeper and deeper into sin. And I'm suggesting that's probably what's going on with this manager. I'm also suggesting that the master is not dumb. And if the master recognized that this guy was a jerk to begin with, he probably wouldn't have made him a manager. But the point of this vignette, as opposed to the previous vignette, is in the previous one, the master was coming back from an evening out or a day out. Short term, master's in a good mood when he gets home. 
This one, he's off longer, off on a business trip or off on something where he's gone for quite a while. So he's gone long enough that this manager can start slipping and can fall into bad habits and bad behavior and get himself in trouble. All right, let's pick it up at 45, which is the beginning of a sentence. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him among the unfaithful. This idea of coming on a day and an hour when he doesn't know is further indication of an extended absence. And notice that when the master comes back and finds out what's been happening, the master is ticked. In the previous vignette, when the master comes back and he finds the servants awake, it's a joyful occasion and he serves them and so forth. And you sort of get the impression if they'd been asleep, he would have just woken them up and snarled at them a little bit maybe and gone off to bed. Here, the master is seriously ticked. Big difference in the two vignettes. Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. This is actually one of my favorite passages in scripture. So what you've got are Two different servants, two different kinds of servants. One knows what he is supposed to do and does not do it. The other is also a servant, but isn't sure or doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do. And so does something that is deserving of punishment. The one who knows better will get a severe beating. The one who didn't know better will get a light beating. Now, one of the things that I have heard ever since I've paid any attention to Christian radio, for lack of something better, is sin is sin. Do any kind of sin and boy, you're crispy critter unless you just repent and, you know, on and on and on. A, you wouldn't treat someone like that. You are able to tell the difference between a murderer and someone who jaywalks. They're both illegal. But you can look at those two situations, you say, that's a murderer, we need to deal with him this way, this guy's a jaywalker, if he doesn't get killed and get the Darwin Award, we'll give him a ticket. You can tell the difference. What makes you think God can't tell the difference? And what this says is, in fact, God can tell the difference. And he adjusts the consequences for bad behavior according to the attitude, if you will, of the sinner. I just find that very commonsensical. And to think that God doesn't have common sense flies against everything I know about God. I mean, he's merciful and gracious and all that kind of stuff. But he also gave us the mental faculties we have And if we can tell the difference, I suspect he probably can too. And in fact, that's what scripture says here. You see exactly the same thing in the Torah. If you murder somebody, you get killed. If you steal a sheep, 
you repay five for one and move on. Comment was, your parents, when they were disciplining you as a child, would ground you for something and they knew how serious things were and so forth. And a big point of the Torah is to train us. When you break a law, then you will have consequences, and the whole purpose of the consequences is to bring you around and improve your character. Except in the case of something like murder, where, okay, well, it's everybody out of the pool in that case. I mean, but most sins are not that way. They're, if you steal a sheep, you got to come up with five to return, and so maybe you don't want to steal any sheep because it's economically unviable, if nothing else. The comment was that I had said that Yeshua doesn't answer the question directly, and I am going to continue to say that. And my dear wife said what he's saying to Peter is, you want to be both a good servant and a good manager while I am gone, and you don't want to be like either the Pharisees or some sects of Christianity who add grievous burdens onto the people who follow them and are in a sense then eating and drinking and beating the servants. You don't want to do that. I completely agree with that. However, the question is, is it just for us disciples or is it for everybody? And that particular part of the question is not answered directly. That was all I'm saying. So verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. So the idea here is that the way you are evaluated is a function of how much responsibility you've been given. I find that, I keep wanting to say very human. I mean, God isn't human, so, but Yeshua is, so that works. But it's very commonsensical. Any manager who knows what he's doing behaves that way. Verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and word that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. First off, Yeshua is controversial. Clearly, he was controversial in... Israel at the time that he walked the earth. He continues to be controversial. And it continues to be the case that you will have divisions in families where some people believe and follow and others don't. In my own family, as far as I know, my middle sister is not a believer. My younger sister is. And that has been a source of some strife. So that's not unusual at all. The thing that I find interesting here, and I'm not sure what to do with it, is verse 50, where he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, 
and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I don't know what that means. All the comments were, he wants it to be over with. And would that it were already kindled in verse 49 is certainly that. Wish it was there. But the way the translation I have reads is how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That reads to me like, I want to get on with this. And that doesn't match with the Garden of Gethsemane. I can see I want to be beyond this. But that's not the way that it reads. The comment was, what he's distressed about is all of the stuff that he is dealing with right now, with the Pharisees rejecting him and, and so forth, and the fact that uh, there's so much interpersonal strife and toil that he is going through right now. That may be what's distressing him. So we're all the way down to verse 54. He also said to the crowds, notice we have shifted now. We've been talking to the disciples up until now. Now we're talking to the crowd. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And so it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And this is in the context of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's much clearer in Matthew. You have a watershed where they attribute his works in casting out demons to Beelzebub. And he is coming there as a prophet. And the purpose of a prophet is to tell them that they are out of line and God is getting ready to take some action. And the prophet is there to warn them and give them a chance to repent. They don't take it. In fact, the only ones I know of that did take it were Ninevites. So they don't take the warning. And of course, then once they don't take the warning, the consequences follow. So I take this passage in that context. What he's saying here is, you guys can look at the sky, you can tell when it's going to rain, you can tell what's coming, you can you know, see the blossoms and know the fig tree is going to bloom and all that kind of stuff. Why can't you see what's going on in the spiritual realm when I have just come and I have told you to repent? What's your problem here, folks? That's the context I take this in. So then we get down to verse 57. And remember, he's talking to the crowd. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. This is in the context of him being a prophet, warning them that they have an accuser. And what they want to do is they want to repent and they want to settle their debt instead of being dragged before the judge. Because if you're dragged before the judge, then what happens is whatever the judge says your opportunity 
to settle things on your own terms is not quite the right way, but your opportunity here to make a good settlement that doesn't involve great distress is over once you go into the courtroom. So you want to stay out of the courtroom, which is to say you want to listen to the message to repent. You want to change. I like the way Ronald Dart put it. I was listening to him a week or two ago. And the way he said it is, there isn't any point in giving you a warning if there's nothing you can do about it. So God sends a prophet and gives them a warning. And if there was nothing they could do about it, then why are we sending the prophet? So Yeshua, when he comes and he gives the warning to Israel and says, you guys need to repent, there is an opportunity for them to hear that message and change. We, of course, know that they didn't. And 40 years later, they got sanded off by Rome. The same thing happened to Judah, and they got sanded off by the Babylonians, and the same thing happened to Israel, and they got sanded off by the Assyrians. But in every case, God sends them prophets and says, repent. Come on, you guys are seriously out of line. Come back, repent. Judge for yourselves what is right. And the point there is, I have given you the Torah. You have a standard against which you can judge your behavior. You have a standard against which you can judge your society. Do that. Judge. Make changes. Which takes me off on a tangent. One of the things that just annoys the whop out of me is people who say, judge not, judge not, judge not. And what Yeshua here says is, judge for yourselves. Look at your behavior. Point at it and say, that is wrong. We need to change it. And for people who are hip deep in various kinds of perversion and sin, to say, judge not, judge not, just fries my bacon, to quote somebody over there in a red hat. At this point, he has shifted into parables, which is to say he's quit speaking plainly. That's perfectly consistent with Isaiah 6, where God tells the prophet, keep talking to them, but talk to them in a way that they will not understand because I've had it with them. They're going into exile. That's what's happening here with Yeshua, and he's giving them one last shot here, and he's saying, folks, Judge your society. Judge yourselves. You're able to look at the weather and tell what's going to happen. I've given you all the tools that you need to look at yourselves and tell what's going to happen. Do it. The way I interpret judge not lest you be judged is it's a warning against hypocrisy. What we do, what we all do, is we look at somebody else's sin and we're really hard on it, and we look at our own sin and we, oh, well, I mean, that isn't any big deal. That's just totally human. And that's what that passage is talking about. It is not telling you to put your discernment in your pocket and just ignore behavior that you know is wrong. It's telling you to use the same standards on yourself that you are using on everybody else. And I ain't saying it's easy. Because as I say, we all have a really good justifier, and there's always a really good good reason for my sin, but boy, your sin is inexcusable. That's the way we are.
Let's take an example from the Lashon Harah book. Hokotayim laws of proper speech. So let's say that you and Mike have been in business. And you're not in business with Mike anymore because you notice that things disappeared from inventory and things disappeared from the cash register and so forth. So I'm considering going into business with Mike. Do you warn me? And that's one of the exceptions is, yes, you warn me. <laughs> 